All right, morning, everyone. Why don't you open your Bibles to Luke 15, please? The title of this morning's sermon is Joy in Heaven Over One Sinner Who Repents. And you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's Gospel verse by verse, and we find ourselves at verse 7. But I'm going to back up to verse 1 for context. So as the tax collectors and sinners were drawing nearer to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost, had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You may be seated. Father, we've entered such an incredible chapter. I don't know that there are many in all of Scripture that rival what we're digging into each week on these Sundays. Maybe I, maybe I feel that way with most of the passages I deal with, but I do think these are particularly um, special parables associated with your heart for the lost and the joy that you experience over sinners who repent and are saved and i want us all to be able to appreciate just how much joy you experience when sinners are saved and and how you rejoice when you seek us and find us and so i pray lord that we would see that through these through these parables <clears throat> I, i'd like to do justice to them lord i don't feel particularly good this morning and i don't say that to more any pity or anything but we just ask that by your grace i'd still um, preach well and powerfully you'd use me for your glory and honor, uh, that your, your people and your word wouldn't be shortchanged at all. And I thank you for this time, Lord, and I pray that anything you have for your people would be delivered to them this morning to reach their hearts. We think about any lost sinners who are here who haven't yet been found, and we ask that today they would be, Lord, and that you grant them repentance so there could be rejoicing in, in heaven even during this service should they come to salvation. And so we pray for that, Lord, and we pray that over the coming weeks as we prepare for the exchange, you'd give us a burden for the lost that we'd be your hands and feet that would reach out to seek them, and that you'd help us to grow evangelistically in regarding outreach as a church, burden us to attend the exchange and prepare us for it. And we pray this as well in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> amen, amen. So last week we looked at the first parable, which was the parable of the lost sheep, and this morning we're going to be looking at the parable of the lost coin. A few things that I'll just point out. The first parable dealt with a man, and the second parable deals with what? A woman, the first parable dealt with 100 sheep. The second parable deals with 10 coins. And so we're kind of narrowing here, aren't we? Because, you know, the following parable deals with what? So we went from 100 to 10 to, to 1. So we have two sons and then, and then one that's lost. But actually, we'll see when we look at the parable that two are lost. And so we're <clears throat> losing 1 out of 100 or 1% and then losing 1 out of 10 or 10% and the next week losing 1 out of 2 or 50%. The value is increasing. One coin would be worth more than one sheep and then obviously one son would be worth more than, than one coin. Look with me at verse 8. 
Jesus says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? The silver coin, this would be a drachma, which would be a Greek coin that's roughly equivalent to a Roman denarius, which would be the coin we're most familiar with from the Gospels. It would be approximately one, what you'd receive for one day's work or one day's labor. So it doesn't sound as though it's a particularly valuable coin, but this value uh, is more sentimental than financial because most commentators seem to agree that this would have been one of the seven coins that a woman would be given when she was married, and she would then typically wear these coins. My understanding is in a headband around her head to, to show that she was married. There could be a chain that kind of held them together. So there, it, it, for her to lose one of these coins would kind of be like a woman today losing what? Yeah, her wedding ring or maybe one of the stones in her wedding ring. You might not be terribly upset about the value loss, maybe if it was a large diamond, I suppose, but <laughs> you're, you're more concerned about the sentimental loss, that that's your wedding ring and what exactly that means to you. And so you can understand how this, how this woman would feel as she recognizes that one of these 10 coins is missing. <clears throat> Ancient houses were dark. They didn't have, you couldn't just walk in, you know, and turn on a light switch to be able to see. And so if this woman is going to be searching all of the corners and so forth to find this coin, she's going to need some light. And so it says that she turns on this lamp to help her find the coin. And then look at verse 9. When she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. So just as you can imagine, a woman who loses a stone out of a wedding ring is going to rejoice when she finds that stone, or if she's lost her wedding ring, would rejoice when she finds her wedding ring. This woman rejoices when she finds that lost coin that was missing. <coughs> the parable, we understand, is not primarily about silver coins, is it? <laughs> this isn't Jesus wanting to discuss with us what it looks like when a woman sweeps her house and tries to find something that's missing. This, this parable goes beyond the physical to the spiritual. It is primarily about Christ searching for lost sinners and how he feels when he finds them. And so when you see this language like lights a lamp, uh, sweeps a house, seeks diligently, and you see all of the effort that this woman goes to to find this coin, you need to look past that and understand that Jesus is metaphorically describing all of the effort that he goes to to find lost sinners and then to save them. And if you really want to think of the lengths that Jesus is willing to go to for lost sinners, our minds immediately go where? To the cross, right? We think of him hanging on that cross, and we see that beyond sweeping a house, turning on a lamp, or seeking diligently, this is how far our Savior would go to save lost sinners. To make it abundantly clear that this parable is not primarily a physical story about a woman searching for a coin, verse 10 says, just so... I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so rejoicing over lost sinners, it's not something that's just important to people on earth. We can celebrate it, uh, share the news when someone comes to faith, but it is something that causes joy in heaven as well. All of heaven wants to see people be saved and, and responds with joy when, when that occurs. I want to draw your attention to something that I don't think would be initially obvious to us. Look at verse 5. 
It says, when he has found it, the lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Okay, now pause here. Does that seem pretty reasonable? This isn't a trick question. That seems pretty reasonable, doesn't it? He finds the sheep, and he's been looking for it for some amount of time and celebrates that it's no longer lost, puts it on his shoulders to bring back to the flock. But now look at the next verse with me. When he comes home, he calls together his neighbors or his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep or found my sheep that was lost. Now, honestly, does that seem reasonable or does it seem a little absurd? Could you picture a shepherd finding a sheep and then he gets home and he tells all of his friends and neighbors, hey, I mean, what do you think they're probably going to say when he says, hey, let's all come have a huge party and celebrate together that I found one of my sheep that was lost. They might say, well, I mean, we'd kind of imagine celebrating that if it was your child that was lost or if there was a wedding or like a graduation or something particularly memorable. But the idea that we're going to celebrate like this over a sheep is kind of seems silly or exaggerated look at verse 9 to see the same thing when she found it she calls together her friends and neighbors and she says rejoice with me for i have found the coin that i lost so if you want to have an idea what this would look like imagine in our day that there is a woman who has lost a stone in her wedding ring and then she finds her stone and then she goes and she calls all of her friends and all of her neighbors and tells everyone around her to celebrate because she found the stone that was missing from her wedding ring how would that seem it would seem kind of kind of silly wouldn't it or absurd nobody have you and and all of your you know lifetime have you ever heard of anyone calling a bunch of people together to celebrate finding their wedding ring hey i gotta go you know we're gonna go to this party for this wedding or this graduation party but nobody's ever said hey we're gonna go to this party for the woman who found her wedding ring right (laughs) we're gonna go for the to the party for the person that found their lost sheep so my point is this is exaggerated this is another example of jesus using hyperbole nobody would act this way over a lost sheep or a lost coin being found and so why present such an absurd situation or why use hyperbole here the answer is for the same reason that jesus always used hyperbole or exaggeration because he wanted to drive a point home and what is the point that he wants to drive home here he wants to show the celebration associated with not a lost sheep or a lost coin being found but a lost sinner being found and this brings us to lesson one the lord rejoices over one sinner salvation the lord rejoices over one sinner salvation <coughs> as soon as you recognize that the lost sheep and the lost coin represent a lost sinner and you see the celebration or rejoicing associated with that lost not sheep or coin but sinner being found you understand what this is intended to communicate there is considerable celebration in heaven when sinners are saved and that's what it says there's joy before the angels this is not simply saying that there's joy in heaven i'm sure there is obviously joy in heaven when a sinner repents but this is saying joy before the angels because it's the joy of god himself god is the one who's before the angels nobody celebrates sinners salvation more than god does as we continue to prepare for the exchange one of the applications from these parables hopefully for us is that we should rejoice over lost sinners who are found 
To do so is to be like God, to experience the same joy that he himself experiences. Two themes in this parable. We've already been talking about one of the themes. We'll talk about the other one in a moment. But the first theme is joy. You notice the word joy or rejoicing occurs in five times in verses 5 through 10, pretty much every verse. So <clears throat> if someone asked you, what brings God joy? What brings God joy? What would you say to that? Well, there could be a couple answers you could come up with. You could say, when <clears throat> people have marriages that reflect Christ in the church because it's such a good testimony, or when, or when parents raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that brings God joy. Or when children obey their parents and honor them, it brings God joy. That's the, the commandment that has a reward associated with it, longer life. And so we know that that's going to bring God joy when children obey their parents. But it seems abundantly clear that there's one thing in all of Scripture, that brings God more joy than anything else, and that is lost sinners being saved. Now, you want to know something that's particularly interesting and sad about that truth? The thinking in Jesus' day was the opposite of what I just said. The thinking in Jesus' day was that God found joy in nothing more than lost sinners being what? punished or judged. In Christ's day, the thinking was nothing brought God more joy than sinners, not salvation, but condemnation. William Barclay said many of the religious leaders would say there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. And so you say, well, that's kind of hard to believe. It shouldn't be hard to believe. Just look back at verse 2 and consider the criticism that the religious leaders had brought against Jesus for associating with sinners, and you can get a pretty good idea of how the religious leaders felt about sinners. How, how did religious leaders feel about sinners? They despised them. They thought they were beneath them. They thought, they thought that if people suffered, like they had a disease or an infirmity, it was because God was punishing them because God despised sinners so much, and he wanted nothing more than to inflict punishment on them. So Jesus comes on the scene and he preaches these parables that completely contradict the thinking of the day, the, the exact opposite, that God loves nothing more than to see sinners repent and be saved. In this account, <clears throat> notice the grumbling. Well, let me, let me get you to just look up me for a second. If you've got to have an elevated view of this account, because there's just some things that don't become clear uh, when you dig into the verses too much, you need to have a, a, you know, an elevated view what does this chapter begin with? Not joy, but in verse 2, grumbling. Chapter begins with grumbling, which is then juxtaposed or contrasted with what throughout the rest of the chapter? The joy. So verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, and then verse 5, when he finds it, lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, the end of verse 6, he says, rejoice with me, I found my sheep. Verse 7, there's more joy in heaven. Verse 9, in the middle of the verse, rejoice with me, for I found my coin. And then verse 10, just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over a sinner. So <clears throat> when lost sinners are saved, what's happening on earth with the sinful religious leaders? Grumbling, complaining. What's happening in heaven? Celebration rejoicing, complaining on earth, 
rejoicing in heaven, which really shows how far the religious leaders' hearts were from the heart of God, that they could be looking at the exact same event taking place, and while heaven is rejoicing, they are grumbling and complaining. More than likely, these parables serve as subtle criticisms of the religious leaders. Because remember, Jesus preached these parables in response to the criticism in verse 2, but not just to clarify why he was with sinners, but I think to rebuke the religious leaders and show that instead of experiencing the frustration that caused them to grumble, they should be rejoicing about what they're seeing here. And I want you to think about something. These parables could talk about a shepherd finding lots of lost sheep, or there could be a parable about a woman finding multiple lost coins. Do you notice the, the singular nature of each of the parables? Do you, know, do you notice the emphasis on one, one sheep, one coin, one sinner? Look in verse 4. Which man of you have a hundred sheep if he lost one of them? And then at the end of the verse goes after the one that's lost. Verse 7, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner. Verse 8, if she loses one coin. Verse 10, toward the end, one sinner who repents. Do you, can, can you suspect why I want to draw attention to this? Has it ever crossed your mind that you are one of millions of people who have been saved? And when that crosses your mind, how do you start to honestly sort of feel about yourself? Yeah, kind of insignificant. It's like, oh, okay, well, I mean, I'm thankful I'm saved, but I'm, but I'm also one of who knows how many thousands or millions of people who have been saved. There's it's so many people in the world, so many people throughout human history. And again, we recognize even if it's a minority that ends up being saved, when taken, when looking at that minority throughout all of human history, we're talking about millions of, of people here, and it's easy to start to feel like we're not very special. We're not very significant. We're one of who knows how many other people who have been saved. And so could our salvation really be what to God? Meaningful or special? Does God, does God really notice? I mean, you know, when there's millions of people getting saved, does he really notice when one specific person is saved? Does he really care that much considering the, the totality of people who were saved? Well, what do these parables do? These parables prevent us from thinking that. These parables are preached in such a way so as to show that every single person who's saved is incredibly special to the Lord, incredibly significant to Him. And there's personal application. This should cause you to recognize that when you were saved, it was incredibly special to the Lord, that He rejoiced in that moment that you are very significant to him, that you're not just one of a number or some huge mass of people. You can consider how he felt when you were saying, if you ever start to doubt that, you say, well, you know, I'm just kind of feeling like a number again. I don't think I'm very special to the Lord. I wonder if he hears my prayers, if they kind of get drowned out by everyone else's prayers. And am I, I know I'm his son, but how many sons are trying to access God right now? Does he really care that much about me? If you ever start to feel that way, go to this chapter 
and read these parables and see the emphasis that God deliberately puts on just one sinner so you can recognize how he sees you and feels about you. We might not often think of God rejoicing. In fact, again, the thinking of the day, if you remember when we, when we were in Acts 17, and if you don't remember, don't, don't worry about it. I don't, I don't often remember what I preached recently, so I don't expect you to remember months ago, but in Acts 17, we talked about the Stoics named such because they thought that God was, or the God they believed in, or they thought that the, the God of the universe, who wasn't really someone that could be known, was very Stoic. So the understanding of God is he's, he's this very detached deity, and it's almost like a sign of God's maturity or greatness to be unmoved. The idea is God is so great that nothing affects him. Well, if that's the view of God, then what would people think God would never do? What would God never do? He would never rejoice. He would never celebrate. He would never feel anything. There's kind of this idea that we're the people and we're made in the image of God, but we feel more than God does. Like, we have more intense experiences than Him. And when we view God that way, we're kind of viewing Him the way He was viewed in the ancient world, detached, unemotional, unfeeling. This is far from the only place in Scripture that presents God this way. I told you last week that we, you can get in trouble if you drill too much into parables. You do need to look for supporting verses, and there are other places in Scripture that reveal this heart of God rejoicing. Turn to Matthew 25. Turn to Matthew 25. <clears throat> We will come back to Luke. This is the parable of the talents in verses 14 to 30. We're familiar with this. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but the context is there's a man who represents the Lord, and he goes on this far journey, which represents Christ going from heaven back to earth or ascending to heaven. And before he ascends, he leaves talents with servants. The talents represent the abilities or gifts that God has given each of us, and then the master is going to return, and he's going to see what each of the servants have done with the talents or the abilities or gifts that he's left them with. And you know that there's one servant that's given five, another that's given two, and another that's given one talent. And so the first two servants were faithful. If you were not familiar with this account, okay, so pretend you've never heard this before, and the servants come and they stand before the master— and they have been faithful, what would you expect the master to say to them? Okay, I'll just tell you what I would expect. I would expect something like enter into heaven. Or I might expect the master to say, enter into the joy of heaven. That's not what he says. He says the same thing twice. Look in verse 21. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much, enter into, not the joy of heaven, but the joy of your master. It is the master's joy. He says the same thing in verse 23 to the second faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Interestingly, it is not worded the way we might expect. Their reward is not the joy of heaven itself. 
although I'm sure they will be joyful associated with being in heaven, and there will be lots of joy from people in heaven. But this is worded to show that the reward is being able to experience the master's joy. The master says, I am joyful over what you have done. I am rejoicing over your faithfulness, and I am inviting you to come into heaven and experience some of that joy with me. It is the master's joy that is offered to them as a reward. It's possessive. He says, it is my joy, and you can have some of it, or I will share it with you. I will let you experience it with me. Did you, so did you know that when you get to go to heaven someday, the reward is getting to experience some of God's joy with him regarding your faithfulness? So once again, we get to see the Lord's joy associated with this time, not people's salvation, but their faithfulness. Listen, you can turn to this if you'd like. I don't want to have them flip around too much, but Isaiah 62, 5 if you've never heard this verse before, you might circle it, highlight it, at least write it down so you can turn and look at it sometimes, because it gives us one of the most incredible windows into God's heart that's available in all of Scripture. There's only one other verse that rivals this verse. Isaiah 62, 5 says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride... And then notice this, so shall your God rejoice over you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. It's interesting, I just performed a wedding the other day, same thing that I have witnessed at countless other weddings. I, uh, whenever I'm blessed to officiate, I'm standing up there near the groom, and when the bride walks in, People stop looking at the bride for a second. Do you know where everyone looks? They look at the groom. They want to see the look on the groom's face when he sees his bride for the first time. And it's, it's really pretty incredible. You can see it's like sometimes it often kind of looks like the groom just got a gut punch when he sees his bride walking in because he's just so moved. It's a very touching, touching moment. And the reason I'm describing that is because there's, there's few things in life that rival the way a groom feels about his bride. Maybe the way parents feel about their children is the only other thing I can think when you look at that child for the first time. And this verse is saying, your God rejoices over you like that. I am not inferring that. I did not come up with that on my own. I'm not expecting you to believe what I am making up. This is what it says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Next example, Zephaniah 3.17. That one's going to be a little harder to find. At least write it down in your notes if you don't turn to it. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And then listen to this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. And it gets even better, but just hold on to that. God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And then he will exult over you with loud singing. That is incredible. 
I mean, I almost feel like we just need to like camp here for a moment and just try to soak in what exactly I just read. I feel like I'm still trying to fathom it after thinking about it this week and putting it in my notes. It says, God is going to exult over you with loud singing. How many of you even knew God sang? (laughs) I mean, don't you think about singing to God? Did you think about God singing, and if he did, over you? And it, and it, even, it doesn't even just say it's singing. It's loud singing. I, I don't have to add that. It says, he will exult over you with loud singing. So here's what we do, and this is very sobering as a father. We project on God what we know of our earthly fathers. So if we have fathers who are irritated or annoyed with us, who don't take pleasure in us or rejoice over us, then we imagine a God or Heavenly Father who's what? Pretty much like that. And it's one reason as a father, we really want our children to know how much we love them and how much pleasure we take in them because they see God the Father through us, right? But if you grew up and that wasn't, and that was ever a question in your mind, how your earthly father felt about you, you could project that on your heavenly father and believe he's always irritated with you. He's always annoyed with you and frustrated with you. You you don't do anything right. You rarely do anything right. Most of the interaction is is going to be negative or critical. You need to be sort of detoxed of that thinking and plant yourself in a verse like this and read over and over or memorize, he will rejoice over you with gladness, he will quiet you by his love, he will exult over you with loud singing. So God apparently sings, and he sings over his people, and he sings loudly. That's how much joy and delight that he takes in us. He breaks into song, which is a wild thought to me. Spurgeon said, Think of the great Jehovah singing. Can you imagine it? Is it possible to conceive of the deity breaking into a song, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together singing over the redeemed? God is so happy in the love which he bears to his people that he breaks the eternal silence and sun and moon and stars with astonishment. Hear God chanting a hymn of joy. Few, few people can word things like Spurgeon can, right? So he really shut down a bunch of pastors in the future because nobody can write as eloquently as him. But you still, even without his commentary or whatever injustice I would do to these verses, you can't miss the beauty of God singing over you and the pleasure that he takes in you and how he delights in you if you're saved. And hopefully you see the relationship this has to outreach and evangelism. We want sinners to hear the gospel, repent, and believe not only because that means people get saved. In other words, we want to preach the gospel not only because of what it means to the person who gets saved, but we want to preach the gospel because of what it means to God, that it pleases Him. So we, we generally, for me, I think of spreading the gospel because I think of lost sinners being saved and needing to hear it. Rarely do I think about what it means for God until this week when I was challenged thinking, wow, if I love the Lord then I should want to bring him joy. I should want him to rejoice. And this is one thing that does that, accomplishes that more than anything else. 
Now, speaking of repentance, that's the second theme in the parables. If you turn back to Luke 15, Luke 15, verse 7, he says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over a sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In verse 10, I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Three times the word repent or repentance comes up in these verses. Now, lost sheep and lost coins find it impossible to repent, right? That's not something they can do. And so Jesus adds this so that the religious leaders and sinners who heard him knew that repentance is important for lost people. And this brings us to lesson two. The Lord seeks and the sinner repents. The Lord seeks and the sinner repents. And with this discussion of repentance, some balance is introduced to this equation. Because up to this point, there has not been any responsibility on our shoulders whatsoever except basically getting lost. What, what do you do? What, in, in terms of this morning's sermon, last week's sermon, and even kind of before that, what is your responsibility in all this? Just getting lost, right? If you're a coin, you just roll away someplace you shouldn't be. If you're a sheep, you just wander away from the flock. That's all you're responsible with doing. And then you wait until you're found. Well, right here, we see man's responsibility. Last week's sermon, we talked about Christ seeking and saving the lost. He is the initiator. We didn't talk about sheep or coins doing anything. You know, a coin doesn't get up on its side and roll back to its owner. A sheep doesn't suddenly say, oh, well, I'm lost, and turn around and make its way back to the flock. So does that mean we have no responsibility at all? No, it doesn't. Our responsibility is found in that word, repent. It's almost like Jesus is saying, if you want to be saved, when you are found, you repent. Let me say it one more time. It's like Jesus is saying, if you want to be saved, when you are found, you repent. If you want to stay lost, then when you're found, you don't repent. And are there lost people who are found, but then don't repent. Yeah, lots of people hear the gospel. I mean, the gospel goes out, who knows, to who knows how many people on Lord's Days or Sundays, just like this one, and there are plenty of lost people who hear the gospel, and they do not repent, and they stay lost. Our responsibility is in repenting, responding to that invitation. Look at verse 7 again. Just so I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There are two ways to view the phrase righteous persons who need no repentance. One view is this is rhetorical or not literal. Like in these verses, you don't have to turn there, but earlier in Luke, that a few weeks ago, Luke 5, 31, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, when Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, was he saying that there are any who are actually well and don't need to repent? No, he wasn't, he wasn't being literal. He said, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Was he actually saying that there are righteous people? No, he's not. He's speaking rhetorically, and some people understand this verse 7 being spoken the same way. The other possibility which is actually the one I hold to, is this is literal. They are righteous people 
who need no repentance because they have already what? Repented and been given Christ's righteousness, which is why they are righteous. So when Jesus talks about righteous people who need no repentance, they don't need to repent because they've already repented, and they're righteous because when they repented, they were imputed with Christ's righteousness. And I lean toward this interpretation primarily because the 99 righteous people seem to be associated with the 99 what? Sheep that are part of the flock and are not lost. So I tend to think that the 99 righteous people are 99 people who are already saved, part of the kingdom of God. So here's what's kind of interesting. God can take pleasure in you after you're saved, but it seems like there's a special joy he takes over those people at the moment of conversion when they are saved and then first brought into the kingdom or brought into the flock. And when we repent, we receive a new nature. And this brings us to lesson three. We need a new nature versus more effort. We need a new nature versus more effort. Something I wish had been communicated to me earlier in my Christian life was that it wasn't so much about how hard I would try, it was about how much I would submit. Does that make sense when I say that? Does that require considerable elaboration? I think there's this belief in the Christian life, it's about how hard we try, and if we try hard enough, then we will succeed and we will develop victories in areas where we previously struggled. And I'm not denying that there's an amount of effort required in the Christian life. I mean, Jesus says the way is narrow and it is hard. It is a, it is a hard way, but it has more to do with submission, submitting to Christ's will for our lives. And when we do that, he will give us a new nature, which is where the victories come from. Listen to this story, and then I'll share something with you about repentance. So there was a scorpion. The scorpion wants to cross a river, but it couldn't swim. And so it asks a turtle to carry it on its back. And what did the turtle say? It says, do you think, it says what you'd expect it to say. Do you think I'm crazy? Because if I let you get on my back when we're swimming across the river, what did the turtle think the scorpion would do? Sting it, and then we're going to start sinking. And so the turtle says, do you think I'm crazy? As soon as we start swimming, if you're on my back, you're going to sting me, and then we're going to drown. And the scorpion responded, and he said, if I stung you and you drowned, I would drown too, and where is the logic in that? And then what did the turtle say? He said, well, you're right, that makes sense. Why don't you go ahead and hop on my back? And so the scorpion climbs on the turtle's back, and they begin to cross the river. And then halfway across the river, the scorpion does end up stinging the unsuspecting turtle, And in agonizing pain, sure enough, the turtle begins to drown and the scorpion is drowning with it. And then the turtle asks the scorpion, you said there was no logic in stinging me. So why did you do it? And the scorpion said, it has nothing to do with logic. It is just my nature. And so the point illustrates something important that Scripture teaches that it is in our nature to sin. The scorpion didn't choose to sting the turtle. The scorpion stung the turtle because that's what's in its nature to do. And Scripture speaks similarly regarding our nature. When you've lied, why did you lie? 
Did you lie and then become a liar? No, that's not what happened. Did you steal and then become a thief? That's not what happened. You lied because what? You are a liar. You stole something because you are a thief, and that's what thieves do. When you stole something, you just revealed what was already on the inside. It just came out. But you didn't become a thief. It's not like you stole something and then suddenly you're a thief. You didn't covet and then become a coveter. You coveted because you are a coveter. That's what was on the inside. It was in your nature to do these things. Or it was in our nature to do these things. Job 15.4, what is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a virgin that he can be righteous? And this, the point of this is we're not going to be able to try hard enough. That's what Job was recognizing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we're not going to be able to go from being impure to pure or from unrighteous to righteous. The verse makes the point that we can't change because it is in our nature to be impure and to be sinful. Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? If so, then you can also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So despite what the world says, and this is one of the major problems with psychology, we can't heal ourselves. We can't change ourselves. It is not in man to save himself. We have as much potential to change our sinful nature as an Ethiopian does the color of his skin or a leopard does to change the, the spots. <clears throat> we can't put forth enough effort that we suddenly get rid of our sinful natures and become sinless. And so what is the solution? The solution is repentance and turning to Christ. And when we do that, he begins changing us. He gives us a new nature. In the language of 2 Corinthians five seventeen, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And the wonder with God's change is it begins inwardly and then plays itself out outwardly. But typically we try to change outwardly, outward reform, outward behavior that has no real effect on the inner nature. But when God changes us with the gospel, then the inward changes and that plays itself in the outward behavior being different. People have asked me, how you can tell when people have repented. And I used to say, look for change. One of the reasons that I've stopped saying that deals with the parable of the unclean spirit. The primary point of that, the primary lesson from that parable is that what I was previously saying was wrong. (laughs) The parable of the unclean spirit teaches that people can change temporarily, not permanently. The unclean spirit leaves the house, the house remains empty, and then brings other spirits that make the house even, or home or person even worse than they were before. And so the point of that parable is that it's very possible for people to change temporarily but not permanently. So how do we know when change or when repentance has genuinely taken place? And there's three characteristics I would give you to look for. The first characteristic I would define as earnestness and earnestness to do what's right. If people, or if we, are genuinely repentant, there's going to be an earnestness to do what's right. Earnestness has to do with speed or with urgency, and when we've truly repented, we're not going to drag our feet. Could you, if you were talking to someone, and they said, I am so sorry about what I've done, I am repenting today, and you are going to see a different person but then they seem to be really slow to make any changes and you're watching them drag their feet, you're really going to be doubting the sincerity 
of their repentance. But people who have genuinely repented, they don't wait until next year. They focus on changing now. Second, there's an indignation, uh, an anger, a hostility toward the sin, a, a, a frustration. This deals with attitude, a hatred toward what they were doing. When people have truly repented, there's an indignation toward sin, a hostility toward it. And then the third thing that's necessary is time. To tell whether repentance has truly taken place, it takes time. You have to be able to see whether that change lasts, whether the earnestness lasts, whether the indignation lasts. And when we see those three elements, whether in our lives or someone else's life, then we can be confident in the repentance, whether in our lives or someone else's lives. Let me conclude by sharing three encouragements with you. First, please keep in mind how much God rejoices over our salvation. So that can be a continual encouragement to you. Second, seeing God's joy when sinners repent, it should motivate our evangelistic efforts. If we love the Lord, we want to please Him. We want to bring Him joy. And seeing sinners saved or preaching the gospel so they can be saved is something that accomplishes that. Third, if we're going to be like God and He experiences joy when sinners repent, then we should experience that same joy when we see people saved. If you have any questions about anything I've preached this morning or I could pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service and it would be a privilege to talk to you. Father, I thank you for this time this morning and this wonderful window it gives us into your heart when sinners are saved. We thank you that you rejoice over us. And as Isaiah and Zephaniah said, the, the pleasure and delight you seem to take in us, even uh, singing over us, it says, Lord. And I'm sure that I don't on this side of heaven fully understand what that looks like, but I, I do thank you for revealing that to us, the, the pleasure you feel toward us, Lord, and help us to take that with us, especially during any low or dark points in our lives. And I pray if there's anyone sitting here today that you've found by bringing them here, but they haven't yet repented, that you would grant them repentance, that they would be convicted, that they would see their need to repent and be saved. It's not coincidence that any, anyone would be here today, Lord. You're sovereign over our lives, but we still recognize the responsibility we have to respond to the gospel when it's preached to us, Lord. And so we would pray for that in each person's unsaved person's heart, and we ask that as well in Jesus' name. Amen.